Please pray with me as we open God's word together. Father, please um, share with us the great treasures of your word this morning. Um, Please open our hearts to receive them and to rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you know this about my schedule, but four times a week at 4.30 in the afternoon, I gather the neighborhood children from my block and uh, take them for a ride on the bye-bye buggy. Um, it's, uh, it's a big six-seater bus for toddlers. And uh, buggy rides usually turn out to be the highlight of my day. Uh, those kids are awesome, and they say some wonderful things. Uh, so this week, uh, my niece, Esther, climbed onto the bye-bye buggy, and she immediately told us, I'm sad that Christmas is over. At which point we told her that Christmas is going to come back again at the end of the year. And her face lit up and she said, I'm glad Christmas is coming. Uh, And I wonder if she's not the only person in this room who's already started looking forward to next Christmas. Uh, I myself like Christmas very much. Um, And in January, I usually come back from Christmas feeling generally pretty good about the world. That whole end of year season seems to be lit with a kind of heavenly glow, and happy things seem possible. And when I think about it, I think that glow comes from two main light sources that light up the season, two very powerful images that are emblazoned on our imaginations. Uh, The first and most important one is, of course, this one. If you got it on the screen from all the Christmas cards, the star of Bethlehem shining over the birth of Jesus. But there's a second one that's also very powerful in that whole season. We've got to also add this second image uh, of Santa Claus coming through the snowstorms on Christmas Eve to bring presents to every child in the world. Uh, The people who, who don't appreciate or like the first image will still usually appreciate the second one. Uh, So we've got to say that these images light up the season, and indeed maybe the whole year. Uh, We naturally talked a lot about the first image last month, but um, leave that second one up a little longer. Uh, What does the second image have to say in the world? Does it have anything valuable to say? Um, What this image says is that someone in the world is good and kind. Someone cares. Someone sees how much we're struggling. He has a little bit of magic to share. He's going to come and make our season just a little bit brighter and remind us that there's still wonder in the world. And so, yeah, I know this image has been used to make a lot of cheesy movies and to sell a whole lot of Coca-Cola. But nevertheless, I think there remains a good heart behind this image. It's probably more important than we think for our national hope. I expect that some pretty greedy and selfish people take out their wallets and make a donation around Christmas time when they think about Santa Claus. Um, All right, you can take that down now, thanks. Um, You've probably heard somewhere in a sermon that it's wrong to think of God as a kind of heavenly Santa Claus. Ho-ho-hoing his ways through his days in heaven, a bit detached from the real world, just there to hand out nice presents to people, whether or not they've been naughty or nice, um, and not much interested in being seen or known or related to. Of course, in all those ways, God is not like Santa Claus. I'm happy to go on the record and say that. Um, But I want to say today that also maybe he's not as unlike Santa Claus as we might have been led to think. 
he has the same generosity. He has the same magic. His jollity, we might call joy, and his sparkle, we call glory. So today, maybe we do need to put back a bit of the Santa Claus into our mental image of our Heavenly Father. And I want to open today to uh, John chapter 17 in our Bibles, page 903. Let's turn it together. Uh, John chapter 17, and we're starting at verse 1. As Irma was reading this chapter aloud, I was really standing there thinking, wow, we could preach 20 sermons on this chapter and still not have exhausted it. It's, it's really an amazing, incredible chapter. Um, I might not be getting to some of your favorite parts of it today, uh, because what I want to focus on is the strong theme of generosity in this passage, uh, mainly the idea that our God is a giving, giving God. He even outdoes Santa Claus in the breadth and scope of his generosity. Even the wildest extremes of generosity that anyone might have imaginatively attributed to Santa Claus, our God still does more. So in John 17, I want to think about first, everything God owns. Second, the things God gives. And then third, what it means for us to give back. So first then, let's talk about everything God owns. The first half of John chapter 17 is extremely repetitive. You might have noticed that as Deacon Irma read it aloud to us. Uh, like in much of John's gospel, the ideas here go around and around like clothes in the tumble dryer. Here's what it sounds like, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. It's a kind of music or poetry, it has layers and layers of repetitive cadences, and within all that repetitive structure is a recycling of all the big ideas. So uh, I've been trained as an IV inductive Bible study leader, and there are many of us have. And you could really have a field day in this passage circling all the repeated words. There are just so many of them, and I, I gave it a try. I did this, and uh, here's the statistical analysis from verses 1 through 19. The most common word in our passage is world, which is mentioned 14 times. Second is give or gave 13 times. Third is your always meaning belonging to God the Father, 12 times. And below that is a set of words that appear between three and six times. Glory, truth, word, scent, come, and name. I must confess I did not count in or into, but uh, those are some of the big idea words that I found. So that data on repetitions, I think, shows us the substance of what this part of Jesus' prayer is about. It's mostly about what God owns, what God has given, and who God has given it to, i.e. the world. So first up then, here is what God owns or what belongs to him, according to Jesus, as he uses that repeated little word, your. Uh, and I want to list these up on the screen. So number one in verse one, your son. Number two in verse five, your glory, the glory I had with you. Number three in verse six, your name. Number four, still in verse six, your people. Yours they were, and number five again in verse six, your word. 
as we keep going through the passage, verse 9 says, they are yours. That's another mention of your people, which is number 4. The same again, your people in verse 10. Verse 11 has another mention of your name, which is our number 3. Again, we find it in verse 12, your name. Verse 14 has another mention of your word, our number 5, and it comes again in verse 17. So we've got lots and lots of references to the things that belong to God. Several of them are mentioned multiple times, but it boils down to this list of five. Your son, your glory, your name, your people, your word. I want to keep this list up on the screen for a little while and meditate on this. Now, of course, this is very, very far from a complete list of everything God owns. Other parts of Scripture add many things to this list. They say, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. All nations are his inheritance. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty. So I'm not pretending that this is by any means an exhaustive list. But I do think it's a very important list. I think we might go as far as to say that if God the Father was to list his own top five most precious things that he owns, his most precious belongings, he might list his son, his glory, his name, his people, and his word. These are mighty things, aren't they? Jesus the Son is here praying to his own eternal Father. The disciples listened in, and we now get to listen in to his prayer, on a conversation between the persons of the Trinity. And this is the longest of Jesus' prayers that we have. It is more precious than the earth would be if it were made of a single solid diamond. Here we tread on holy ground. Here we discuss the most sacred things ever to exist, God's Son, His glory, His name, His people, and His word. And what I find most striking about all these things, as we talk about them in this passage, is that all five of them have been given away. The Father has not kept them to Himself, not even His most cherished possessions. Let's see this clearly in the text and go through that list line by line. Number one, the Son. Did the Father give the world his Son? Of course he did. Verse 3 talks about Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And again, Jesus says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world. Verse 14 says, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And verse 13, but now, Father, I am coming to you. The Father gave his only Son into the world to be the bearer of good news and good gifts to the world. The Son did no violence, but violence was done to him. He hated no one, but he was hated by many. And the Father had to watch his own most precious Son brutally murdered. So the Father gave up his own Son into the world for our sake, for our salvation. Number two, his glory. Did the Father give the world his glory? It's a bit more difficult. I certainly don't think the Father gave away his glory in the same way. Jesus prays in, in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. 
And again in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the Father clearly retains his glory throughout the process of the crucifixion, despite the public shame that was poured out upon his Son. And the cross was, in fact, a great moment of triumph, a successful rescue mission that became God's chief glory. But, nevertheless, the Father's glory is something he has given away, not by giving it up, but by sharing it. He shares it with his son in verse 5, who in turn shares it with the world in verse 6 and verse 10. And Paul writes later, those he justified, he also glorified. Number three, his name. Did the Father give the world his name? Here's what Jesus says in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. And again in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. So the name is given away. This time not to the whole world. But specifically to the people of God who are chosen out of the world. Jesus has manifested the Father's name. In other words, reveal to our eyes and ears the Father's true identity and personhood and character. And he has given us his name to be called by, as Stephanie taught the children. We're adopted into a new family. We're taken. We take the family name. Number four, his people. Did the Father give the world his people? Well, absolutely he did. Verse 18, Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And we're going to think uh, more about that a little bit later on. But I want to finish the list with number five, his word. Did the Father give the world his word? And again, the answer is obvious. Of course he did. Verse 14 simply says, I have given them your word. Verse 17 adds, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We see from this passage that the precious word of God is freely given. It's no secret. The apostles made no secret of it. They didn't keep it to themselves. They broadcast it from the rooftops. They translated it into every language they could find. So that we find in our world today that any English speaker could walk into any local bookstore and pick up a copy of God's holy word for 10 bucks. And work is going on to make that true for every language in the world. How are we doing? The earth has 7,394 known languages. Of these, 3,658 now have at least some scripture, which amounts to just less than half of the world's languages, but it does account for more than 97% of the global population. There's still a very long way to go. Still 240 million people without any Bible they can read scattered into nearly 4,000 language groups with an average of 65,000 people in each group. So we see that the work that remains to be done is still greater and harder than the work that has been done so far. But the good news is that it, progress is ongoing and accelerating. The word of God is given, the word of God is received, and the word of God is spreading throughout the world. So then the father's most precious possessions, his son, his glory, his name, his people, and his word are all freely given into this world. They have come to us through the channel of the son. And we must marvel at the generosity of this father. Is there nothing precious that he would keep for himself? 
nothing he won't either give away or share. And certainly his audience is so thoroughly undeserving. What have we done to deserve these precious gifts? Indeed, what have we done to these precious gifts other than scorn them, hate them, trample them, disregard them, and prefer all manner of trivial garbage over them? Nevertheless, our God gives and gives and keeps on giving. He really radically outdoes Santa Claus, doesn't he? Even our very most lofty and outlandish fantasies of what Santa Claus might do, our God certainly does better. Could he put a toy train under the tree of every child in the world on a single night? Of course he could do that. That would be absolute child's play compared to what he has actually done, compared to the generosity he has really shown. He has better gifts and a wider reach than Santa Claus could dream of. He made a much braver and more audacious journey than striking out from the North Pole on a flying sleigh. Do you know that you are treasured? That you are treated? That your chimney is one that the God of heaven has come down? And all his gifts are gifts of purest personal love. Do you know, friend, deep in your soul that he has not forgotten you? that he has not withheld from you even the tiniest thing. He keeps nothing back for himself. He gives it all up for you. And in the end, he will graciously share with you all things. In the words of the father of the prodigal son to his elder son, all that I have is yours. Do you feel rich? Because your heavenly father has made you rich. First, in all the things that really matter, and then in everything else besides. Now, finally, let's talk about what it means for us to give back. And actually, we see in this passage that our response here is less to give back uh, than to be the ongoing gift that is given. We learn in this prayer of Jesus that just like Jesus himself was given into the world to bring to it these gifts of grace, so now we ourselves are given into the world in like manner. Because of verse 18, Jesus says, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So the disciple of Jesus follows Jesus in being sent. Jesus knew that he belonged to his heavenly father. He said, I am your son. And the father had the authority to give him away into the world. Similarly, we realize that we belong to Jesus. He's our Lord. He has purchased us with his own blood. And he now has the authority to give us away into the world. And that is precisely what he intends to do. As with the father's gift of the son, the giving is not casual, It's not wasteful. Instead, it's careful and deliberate. It's a generous gift of love. It's loving both to the Son and to the world. And similarly, Jesus also gives us a way to be loving to both us and to the world. We see the pattern that God gives away not that which is meaningless to him. God gives away that which is precious to him. Indeed, he gives away what is most precious You are on this list as people. And you're given away not because you're worthless, but because you're extremely valuable. And like Jesus, we go into the world 
not to snatch or claim the world, not to fight the world, not to take the world by force. We do not take the world for the Father. Instead, we receive from the Father in order to give to the world. That's the flow. That's the pattern of Jesus. God is the source. We are the channel. And we see that God's heart for the world, then and now and always, is not to own it. He already owns it. His heart is to bless it, to feed and heal and redeem and govern. And now we are given as part of that purpose. So then what specifically do we give to the world? And I think surely the answer to that question is the same five things that Jesus received from the Father and gave to us. We give God's Son, His glory, His name, His people, and His word. We give His Son by preaching and serving our Lord Christ. We give His glory by our worship, by our gratitude, our hope, and our joy. We give His name by our loving fellowship with one another, our strong identity and purpose as His family. We give His people by invitation and by sacrificial love. We give ourselves to the world and we invite them to join our family. And we give his word by believing, practicing, and teaching the truth that we have received. So I want to see that as our, our goal and our mission. And, and notice also what's not specifically on this list. Not listed are your money and your time. You might feel like those are your most precious commodities, that those two things are the hardest to give away, and the things God is always asking you to give. But it's not the case here. This list is different. Uh, you have a set of things that are actually far more valuable, but maybe feel easier to share. And of course, sharing them may involve some amount of your time and your money. But I want us to see that those aren't the primary gifts. Do we know one story in the Gospels where Jesus solved somebody's problem with money? Okay, maybe the fish and the temple tax. Uh, but generally, you get the point. He had so much better gifts to share. And we should similarly keep our focus on the better gifts, saying with Peter and John, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give you. Uh, there might be some ways in our own lives that gifts of money have helped us along the way, eased our burdens, and that's great. But you know that's not what's really saved you. You know that you've received far greater and stronger and more glorious gifts from God's hand. So now we, as we sit here, we ourselves are God's gift to this world. You are God's good news. You are God's good news made manifest to human eyes and ears. You are sent out by Jesus. You have a purpose. Doesn't that make you sit up a little bit straighter? Doesn't that lift your head and fill you with a sense of hope? And isn't that something that easily lies within your power to do? To give out of his own limitless store. So then will we, be, uh, will we consent to be taken out of the world for that purpose? Consent to be sanctified by God's word in order that we may bring God's gifts into the world. In other words, will we consent to become a little like Jesus and be in this world something much better than Santa Claus? Amen.